Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Hi, writers. My name is Rachel Thompson, host of the Lit Mag Love podcast. I am a writer, editorial collective member at Room, and an online instructor for writers. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Canada's oldest feminist literary journal, and We Write, We Light, online courses, and more to help you polish and publish your writing. Each episode of Lit Mag Love takes you behind the scenes of literary journals to give you insights on what's going on there. I talk to writers and editors about their writing practice, delving into what they like in submissions, how journals actually work even, current trends and topics in the literary scene. And in this episode of Lit Mag Love, it's my pleasure to talk to Shazia Hafiz Ramji, the current poetry editor at Prism Magazine, which is the celebrated literary journal out of the University of British Columbia. And as always... This episode truly does take you behind the scenes of a literary journal. In this case, it's a university-based journal at the center of controversy in CanLit. So naturally, as in our last episode, part of our conversation will be about what's happening in CanLit culture, since it was the University of British Columbia where they fired the prof and the fractures and the writing community that grew from there after literary heavyweights signed a letter calling for due process of the accused. And I'll remind you or or inform you in case you didn't listen to the last episode that this is basically Canlit's Me Too moment, Canadian literature's Me Too moment. But it hasn't played out in the way that it has in Hollywood, because in this movement, it has been the less powerful people speaking up and demanding true accountability from our community. So on the show notes for this episode at litmaglovepodcast.com, I will link to articles that will provide some background on this. But again, you do not need to know all the minutiae of the story to listen to the episode. And I think the sense of fracture and healing, as Shazia says, it might seem like things are healing because I'm in the middle of things and I'm there every day. But for people who were there when this was actually going on, I sense that they might be feeling sort of outcast in a way. And she talks a lot in our episode about writers sticking together, which brings the title for this particular episode. So it's stick with writers. And we also talk about Shazia's really laudable efforts to make sure underrepresented writers are welcome with open arms into the pages of Prism. And my sixth grade self jumped in glee when she talked about how being a writer is a lot like being a spy explorer. And we also discuss emotional urgency in poetry, literary criticism, and I hope you'll come away from the episode with a better sense of what working with a dream editor is like and what kind of poems you should never submit to Shazia. By the way, early in the episode, I also mentioned an interview with Alicia Elliott, which is coming up on the next Lit Mag Love. So if you're wondering about that, you didn't miss it. It's coming up.
So today my guest for Lit Mag Love is Shazia Hafiz Ramji. She is an editor with Prism Magazine. She's the Prism's poetry editor. And she's the recipient of the 2017 Robert Croach Award for Innovative Poetry and was a finalist for the 2016 National Magazine Award for Poetry. And her writings appeared in Canadian Literature, Filling Station, The Puritan, and her first chapbook is Prosopopeia. Am I saying that right? <laughs> Uh, from Anne's Brother Press is coming out very soon or it's just come out? Yeah, it came out last year and I swear I picked the title just to make everyone struggle with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, welcome Shazia. So nice to have you here. So my first question is to ask you about when, when did you know you were a poet and, and do you have other poets in your family? It's really hard to tell when, when I knew or if I actually knew when I was younger. Um, but I found myself always writing a lot or wanting to do things that involved writing. Like my dream jobs were being a spy and an explorer when I was a kid. And I just imagined going around the world and writing about places and people and watching people. So I think it was always unconsciously in my mind, but I didn't know that it was called writing or that, you know, I would end up being a poet or a writer. But I remember my first poem, I think, I wrote in front of the TV and I was watching this uh, National Geographic documentary on snakes. And it was this snake called a Sidewinder. And it, that was my first poem. And I just uh, sent it to the newspaper that had this little kid's corner and they published it. And that was my first publication. That's wonderful. Inspired by snakes. <laughs> Not anymore so much, but when I was younger, for sure. I like what you said about being a spy too because I, I I distinctly remember going through a spy phase when I was younger too and I never made that connection of thinking well that's really what poets are that's poetry. <laughs> yeah it makes so much sense right spies and explorers. So can you tell me a bit about what you're writing these days what's your writing like how, how have you evolved since the snake poem? <laughs> um, I don't know what it's like but I'm working on some stories that are it's difficult to tell what they're about right now because I'm kind of holding them close to me so I don't want to simplify them and speaking about them but they're roughly based in Vancouver and there are people who grew up working class people of color and who are sort of romantics in a sense and just the struggle of being a writer from a working class family I think and um, I'm also writing some poems I think right now the project that I'm really fixated on is I'm trying to write about the difference between loneliness and solitude and how sort of social media plays into that, this performances of who you are and who you want to be when you're alone. Hmm, I love that, who you are and who you want to be when you're alone. Yeah. <laughs> so literary criticism, I know, is part of your artistic practice. And I read in an interview that you said, I feel as though there is a false public sphere when reviewing books and talking about books, everything is awesome and cool and great. But what did you mean by that? And how does Lit Crit make the conversation more real? Oh, I sound so cynical in that quote. Um, I think literary criticism makes it more real because the conversations that happen in book reviews and book essays, they require a different kind of attention. You know, when reviewing a book, we, we think of craft and form and voice. And I feel like the reviewer really has to stretch himself or herself to write the review of the book. I think it's actually, there's a kind of generosity in that kind of attention, 
but I don't see it. I don't see a similar kind of attention in, let's say, the publicity talk around a book. You know, the publicist's job is to say everything's awesome and cool and is to simplify the book into a one-liner that would sell. So I just really like the complexity and I think the nuanced attention that book reviews can offer. And do you review for other journals apart from Prism right now? Uh, yeah, I review for Quill and Choir, Subtrain, Hamilton Review of Books, Full Stop Magazine, Canadian Literature. Yeah, like so everywhere, pretty much. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So you've talked about publishing reviews in all those magazines, but what was the very first Lit Mag that you published with, and, and what was that experience like? Was it good? You know, this is in 2012, and I res- really respect the magazine a lot, and I'm surprised they gave me my first publication. It was um, CV2. They published two of my poems, and I just started sending out my work in 2012, and I was um, I had major depressive disorder and a substance abuse issue, and I was slowly just coming out of that and moved into my own place, and I was just writing, and I wanted to send my work out. So that first experience of being published there made me feel really less less alone in a way, because I felt like, oh, wow, there's actually other people who want their eyes on this and whose eyes and heart and mind are going to be with my poems. So that was very, very reassuring for me. It's a beautiful description of the experience of being published, that their eyes and heart and mind are with you. And there's such a, a connection for sure, I think, that comes with publishing. I guess, how do you bring that connection or are mindful of that kind of connection when people are, are submitting to Prism Magazine. I know we're going to talk more about the nuts and bolts of submitting to Prism after the break, but just occurred to me that this was a good time to ask about that. Yeah, I try to balance every issue of Prism with solicitations and submissions. So I'll ask a few people or I'll submit because there's usually I've noticed um, there's kind of a bias in the work that's submitted, where it's usually by people who are sort of, you know, not struggling financially. Lots of white male writers submit more than women. So I feel like it's it's my duty to sort of seek out solicitations to balance out the submissions that come through. And I also really like that I've had a chance to sort of develop, do developmental editing with a few writers. Like I gave the first publication to a Syrian writer and um, we went through three drafts of the poem. We did a lot of rewrites. We talked a lot. It was a very one-on-one intense process. And I really, really feel fulfilled by being able to do that for his work. That's wonderful. And I think, yeah, really telling that you have that awareness about people submitting because they already have that kind of confidence maybe, and they, and they feel like their voices worthy of being heard. And so what are the ways that you communicate to writers who might not feel like their voice has a space in, in most journals or you know doesn't doesn't have the same kind of hubris required to to submit work but how do you signal to them to submit to you because I know prism is definitely identified from what I've heard from a lot of writers from the margins let's say in air quotes as a place that they want to publish so so how how do you communicate that to them I'm very persistent about reaching out to them and I sort of tell them you know I really want to see your work I've read it before and I know the kinds of things that you care about and you know I really want to work with you to develop something to get you published I try to make it clear that I want to help them be published I try not to be vague about let me consider your work you know I just want to make sure that they feel confident about sharing their work with me and trusting me to work with them so I automatically keep a space for them are there things that you've learned through editing writing that informs 
what you're doing in your own writing? Yeah, I've learned so much. I think a really important thing is I've learned to look at my work with a reader's eyes. And I've also learned really to ask the difficult questions of myself that need to be asked and that only an editor can do for another writer. So I think that's really been helpful, especially with the stories, because they, you know, I require a lot of probing into the into my own demons to actually pull them out because I write from things that I know as opposed to what I don't know. So a lot of probing and difficult questions is something that I've learned from editing and to be able to ask those with with generosity and to have this balance of generosity and criticism at the same time, what I call tough love, right? And it's it's a very intuitive thing, I think, but I think that really good editors translate that into this delicate balance of like fine-tuning emotion with analysis to ask the questions and also take care of the writer at the same time. I mean, you're such a poet because there's such a precision to how you respond and so accurate and really articulates for me, I think, a lot of what I like about a good editor too, is fine-tuning that emotion and analysis. But I do want to follow up on the thread about tough love because I've been exploring this season, like I just recently interviewed Alicia Elliott and we were talking about the difference between writing with love and writing with empathy. And it's a question I think I've been really mulling over a lot since reading her. She has an essay on that subject, but also for me, it gets to the crux of the problematic communication around UBC and UBC Accountable. And then, you know, Zoe Whittle's letter has just come out recently for her essay about Candlet and the fracture, if we call it that, that's happening. And and I guess maybe Tough Love does kind of sum up some of the approaches to critiquing the letter that was written. Prism is based at UBC, so I, I feel like I have to ask, just how's it been? <laughs> I think that people are very supportive and it's starting to feel there. I'm starting to feel a sense of community again. I definitely didn't feel that earlier, just in the wake of everything immediately when I got in last year, but recently it's been, it's been feeling quite different. And I feel like people are very open, especially people like Ian Williams and Emily Polwery, you know, they, they encourage students to talk to them and Keith Maillard, who's also very vocal on social media about the stand that he takes on the Galloway case. And so it's really reassuring to see that, you know, the teachers support the students and they're willing to listen and they're there. And I've, I've trusted many teachers recently uh, with similar issues based in Concordia, but um, they've been very trust, very trusting and very open. Yeah. Like Nancy Lee was very helpful with me and Ian Williams too. I confided in him. So I guess what's happened in the year that you feel, you're saying you feel more support now or that things are like healing? Is that the right word to use? Or It's difficult because it might seem like things are healing because I'm in the middle of everything and I'm there almost every day. But then, you know, for people who were there when it was actively going on still, I don't mean to speak for them, but I sense that they might be feeling sort of outcast in a waste and not accepted by the community still and I feel like it's my job to bring them back in and to sort of help heal in any way that I can because we're writers we have to stick together I think. So how, how much overlap is there between the editors at, at Prism magazine and how does it work when one team hands off to the next because I know you're a student at UBC in the MFA program and the previous editors are the same. So so can you just talk a little bit about the mechanics of that even? 
So every year the editors change over. One editor remains just to ease the continuity of the cycle. But basically each editor gets to do a yearly cycle of four issues. So the new incoming editor is brought in on the last issue of the cycle. Um, and they're brought in as an associate editor. So I'll soon be preparing guidelines for, you know, developmental editing and copy editing and line editing for the next editor. Because part of the poetry's job is to compile the markup of the prose and the poetry editor and prepare the layout files for the designer. So we'll take a short break. And then after the break, we're going to talk about specifics of what you're looking for in submissions to PRISM. And we talked a little bit about that, but we can get into more detail. Yeah. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Canada's oldest feminist literary journal. Room has published fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, art, interviews, and book reviews for 40 years and can be found at roommagazine.com. You can find out about the latest calls for submissions, including our open issue, which means you can send work on any theme at this time. The other presenter is my project, We Write, We Light. So whether you want to publish your writing, polish your work in progress, or just get set up with a writing routine you'll stick to, I help you and your words shine. So you can sign up right now for my free five-day challenge that invites you to take daily concrete actions to create a writing routine you will keep. You can find out more at wewritewelight.com. So I am back from the break with Shazia Hafiz Ramji from Prism Magazine. She's the poetry editor there. And we're going to talk specifics about submissions to Prism Magazine. But also um, during the break, she and I were talking a little bit more about what's next for Canlit and sort of almost, I guess, kind of like the Phoenix moment maybe that's happening through a lot of the contention and the fractures that are happening within the Canlit scene. There's also a lot of hope and positive change, I think, that's underfoot too. So did you want to talk a little bit about that? That's a really nice image of the Phoenix. And it also plays into a lot of uh, he's who shall not be named in case you're a Harry Potter fan, you know, the Phoenix and uh, Voldemort. <laughs> yeah, I think that Canadian literature is in the middle of a lot of change right now. But a lot of people are suffering and are doing the hard work and the labor a lot of emotional labor that's very difficult to take on on top of you know publishing and writing careers and teaching careers but I think that change is coming and it's going to be really good for a lot of underrepresented groups and in an effort to change what's been the sort of you know nationalist project of Canadian literature since the 60s where it's not just going to be the same people in power and not just white men anymore. And I guess how is that already happening, do you feel, with, with PRISM right now? Um, with PRISM, I think we've made a lot of really good changes to, you know, systemic access, systemic barriers. So we've eliminated fees for submissions from Indigenous writers so they can submit for free. And that encourages them to submit because, as I was talking earlier about the submissions being for mostly privileged people. So I think there's um, we're creating a space for Indigenous writers especially, but also writers who are from low-income families and low-income households, they also have a chance to write to the editors and say, can you please waive the fee for my submission? And can you talk a little bit more generally too about what you're looking for in submissions to PRISM? What kind of writing do you want to see more of? And also what would you rather not see again for a while? That's a really difficult question, but it's really good. 
I don't think I look for a certain type of submission, but I look for this kind of sense of urgency in the writing, like something that's difficult and real and vulnerable, but also something that's kind of smooth and precise. It's hard to say what that looks like, but I feel like I know it when I see it because the emotional quality just resonates right off the page. I think I'd really like to see more poems that take risks with what a poem can do, you know, politically, socially, culturally. And I'd also really like not to see any any more poems about the great Canadian outdoors <laughs> and about comfortable lives and sort of very small personal sorrows, which which have their place for sure. But yeah, I just want to see sort of big risky poems about difficult things. Hmm. Yeah, you say that it's hard to get really specific about that sense of urgency, but I kind of feel like as writers, we know when we have that sense of urgency too. So people are feeling that as they're writing their work then definitely it sounds like the kind of work that you want to see yeah and you talked a little bit already about the developmental edits that you do and I'm wondering what should a writer expect when their work is accepted at prism what do they expect they expect a lot of emails from me (laughs) and I'm hoping that they'll be able to trust me with the edits and so far it's been going pretty smoothly where, you know, there's a back and forth editorial process that's quite smooth, where I explain the edits and we talk about it. And many people are happy. And I think sometimes people are surprised that their poem made it. And that makes me really happy, too. Like, um, I had the privilege to publish a long poem that was written by J.R. Carpenter and Mary Patterson. And it was, I really like this poem because it was a few pages long and it was sort of like a conversation um, in the span of a train delay. I think J.R was supposed to meet Mary at another train station and there was a train delay and the poem was written between sort of messages back and forth between them. So I really like that, the way it was situated in time and and it was collaborative and it was different. It's not what a poem usually does. I think I went on a tangent there, sorry. <laughs> no, I love tangents. Do go on. <laughs> that's really great. Do you publish a lot of work that's collaborative like that? You, I find we're seeing more and more collaborations happening and I find them really exciting. It's really rare to actually receive a submission that's a collaboration. This was a very rare one. I don't think I've seen them before. So sometimes you hear from writers who think that they need an MFA to publish at the university-based lit mags. And I'm wondering if that's a misconception that you hear often. And, and how do you usually respond to that if you do? I've never heard that, but I definitely can see why people might say that. But I personally don't look at the bios and I couldn't care less whether the person's from an MFA or not. I am just, as far as I'm concerned, we're all writers and we stick together just based on that fact. And I'd like that to be true as much as possible. I mean, I've read, I read submissions for Subterrain magazine too, and I've read for other magazines too, but I've never once sort of thought, oh, this person's from an MFA. It's a safe bet to include them or something like that. But the journals, a lot of journals that are in the Canadian literary industry right now are sort of funded by an MFA program or have ties to it. Like PRISM is is out of the creative writing department at UBC. And I know there's, you know, the Humber Literary Fiction, the literary magazine there. So there's there's ties, but I don't know if it's a requirement or, or a needed thing to be published. Yeah, I've never had the sense from anyone that that's a requirement to be published. But I guess I find that sometimes writers, like emerging writers, will feel that way, and particularly about the ones that are university-based. 
So I think it's good for us to spell it out really clearly. You don't need an MFA to submit to PRISM at all. So we talked a bit about the so a recent poem that you'd published, The Conversation, The Train Journey. Are there any exciting trends maybe that you're seeing in poetry submissions? Is there anything kind of neat that you've noticed in terms of a pattern or, or things emerging? It's a little bit of a dreaded question. There's definitely the great Canadian outdoors trend, which has been alive since, you know, the beginning of time, I think. Not Um, your favorite at all? (laughs) Not my favorite. No, no. I like very difficult sort of poems. Though there's space for quiet poems about, you know, being out in the woods and that's fine. I personally see a lot of poems about violence in the city and that's definitely a trend. And it's actually hard to tell whether I favor those because I like the darker side of things myself or whether that's actually a trend. But in terms of trends, I feel like locally, I'm noticing that there's this kind of coterie poetics happening. And I just I just came up with that phrase right now, but it sounds way more articulate than what I think is going on. But um, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just your people name dropping other people they know, friends of friends. And it kind of bothers me a little bit because sometimes I feel like that's an in into the publication or into the industry, and you know, the New York school poets were doing this in whatever it was, the 70s, 80s, but that was a different time. And I feel like to sort of continue that kind of in-joke thing where you mention your friends is, there's space for that, but it might need to stay within circles of friends and not take up space in publications where really important things need to be said. That sounds very harsh, but that's how I feel. No, but it's definitely got me thinking like, do you mean that they're referencing other people's poems or they're referencing just like name dropping friends, basically? Yeah, they're name dropping other friends who are also other poets or other writers. And so there's just a circle of recognition that goes around. And it's just a kind of tick where there's this sort of inside knowledge that's happening. I really, really don't like that. Yeah, because I would think fundamentally we want our poems to be bigger than that, right? Yeah. And can you tell me now a little bit about a recent piece that you published in PRISM and why you published it? So for the recent issue, I think it's 56.2 that just got back from the printer. And that's the open issue, unthemed. Um, I published two poems by Jonathan Ball. And one of them is called My Parents Don't Know. And I liked it because it was really jarring. It was jarring to hear. It's written in this sort of plain spoken voice. And it's got this repeated refrain of my parents don't know about all these piercings and tattoos. So, in, so immediately I think that, you know, the speaker is a teenager or someone coming into adulthood. I mean, it reflects my experiences in childhood where I had all these secrets from my parents. And it's also, you know, the poet in the family, in a working class family especially, is always a problem. But the, the poem that Jonathan Ball wrote was especially jarring because the plain spoken tone was sort of in contrast to the personal secrets of the poem and the persona who hid a lot of things and that repetition was very anxiety inducing like my parents don't know my parents don't know but it's also empowering in the way that secrets are kind of the things for you and you alone it's kind of like your own personal space where you know no one can go and no one can bother you because it's your own thing and no one can own it so I really liked how much conflict that poem brought up (laughs) And you said you were wondering if it was a younger voice, but was that sort of a bit of a twist in the poem? Yeah, it was a it was a voice that was hard to pin down, but I associated it with my own upbringing and my own teenage teenage. Yeah. 
It's reminding me of a another podcast interview, but where we were talking about the really deeply personal and specific, but how it becomes somehow universal too, or mm-hmm. as poems anyway, have that hook that you can relate and see your own childhood as the problematic poet in the working class family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so, I love when that happens, when something is so personal or the persona is so effective that it can resonate with so much. I want to pick up also on another thing you said in that answer. It was secrets are the things for you and you alone in your own personal space where no one can go. And I wonder what that means about poetry, though, too, because I think a lot of poems are those secrets that are for you alone. But then, especially if you're in a more confessional voice, which a lot of us are who are autobiographical poets, it's like our own personal space. But then somehow there's also this space for that reader, that compassionate reader that wants to connect with us somehow. Yeah, that's really perceptive. I feel like I've kind of noticed that now that I've been wanting to write fiction more. I feel very, very vulnerable trying to write straightforwardly because I do write from parts of my life, even though they take on fictional lives later. But I feel so much more protected by a poem and it feels more true to the kind of things that I might be wanting to talk about, whether they're, you know, following a dream logic or a sort of confessional persona. It still feels like the secret is intact. Whereas in, you know, something like fiction, it's just unraveled and plain and simplified unless you continue writing. (laughs) (laughs) I love that revelation because I don't write fiction and I would always have thought that it would feel more contained there. But that's interesting to hear that it feels more exposed as you write. Mm -hmm. For me, it still feels more exposed, but I think that's because I have a lot of personal things to work through that I'm sort of dumping in my fiction and I'm trying to move past that right now. So, yeah. So as you wind up with PRISM, because you're preparing now for the next editor, what is next? What's coming up next for you? Do you want to tell us a bit about your book? And I recently, just last week, I got shortlisted for, for the Alberta Magazine Awards, which was a total shock. And it was these three poems that um, were published in Feeling Station last year. And it was just so surprising to me because these poems are very dark poems about surveillance and death. <laughs> And they're not narrative or confessional. They're quite, you know, fragmented. They work with the fragment in the poem. It made me feel really good to have those poems be recognized because they're so dark and not not really, you know, light and sort of about love or anything like that. But Congratulations. That's great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and um, we also, I'm part of a group of editors at Quila, and we restarted the publication schedule. So we're going to be doing more interviews And we're going to be doing more essays and writing and talking to more people. So that's really exciting. And I'm so, so relieved to have such strong women alongside me in that in that committee and just to be working with them. And for those who don't know, can you talk just a little bit about what Quila is? It's the Canadian Women in Literary Arts. Yeah, I'm an interviews editor there. And I've also been involved in The Count. So Quila was one of the first organizations in Canada. I think it was the first organization to start The Count for um, equity and reviews and representation of male reviewed books and female reviewed books. And cause it was, it sort of exposed this disjunct between the books that are reviewed, this gender disparity in the books that are reviewed. And since those count results have been shared with the public, things have been changing in literary magazines. So it's really good to see that. And so as you wrap up with PRISM though, what, what's coming up with PRISM, the magazine itself? What kind of themed issues maybe can we expect in the future and events and such 
Yeah, so we're going to be launching an issue called BAD. Um, it's just a bad theme. <laughs> and that's actually at the printer right now. I mean, that's the one I'm working on right now. So it'll be at the printer in two weeks. And uh, we're going to the Magnet Conference in Toronto. So we'll be mingling with other magazines and getting some industry tips and also doing a PRISM launch over there at, at Knife Fork Book on um, April 28th. Oh, great. Yeah. And I think this episode will be out. Yeah, definitely will be out before then. So people should come and check that out. And I should promote my first book too. Yes. <laughs> so my first book is called Port of Being. And it's coming out with Invisible Publishing in Ontario in the fall. And I love my publisher, Helene Nash. She's amazing. <laughs> That's Helene Nash. And, and what editorial house is she with again? Oh, Invisible Publishing. Invisible Publishing. And sorry, can you tell me the title is Port of Being? Yeah, Port of Being. It's B-E-I-N-G. Okay. <laughs> Port of Being. Oh, great. I'm going to have a lot of sinus issues today. So I'm going to have to remember to like do a sinus rinse before I say the title of my book every time. Just <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your apparent lit mag love in terms of how much TLC that you give your writers with all the developmental edits that you're talking about and care there and even the care for finding writers who might not feel like their voice is desired and letting them know you know you really want to hear their voices in your pages. So that's just wonderful to hear from you. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Shazia. So that was my interview with Shazia Hafiz Ramji. And there are, I think, a few things we can glean from this episode that can inform, for sure, I, I see it as informing how I approach writing and, and submissions myself, and I'm hoping that you'll find them helpful too. The first is that she couldn't care less whether a person is from an MFA or not. And I asked this question even though it's not something she'd heard, but I definitely hear it a lot from writers who think, oh, I need to have an MFA in order to be published in the university journals in particular, sometimes journals in general. She doesn't read the bios. She doesn't care. She's looking at the work. Another thing very important to note is that she's a gate opener in that she's looking to help underrepresented writers appear more in the pages of PRISM. So definitely do consider if you feel like your voice isn't being heard in any publications at present, think about PRISM as a place to submit your work because that's the kind of work they're looking for. And more to the specifics of the work, she's looking for emotional urgency. And she'd like to not see any more poems about the great Canadian outdoors and comfortable lives. She wants to see big, risky poems about difficult things. And she's someone who favors poems about violence in the city. So those are things to keep in mind when you're submitting work to her. And then in terms of expectations of what to expect if your work is accepted at PRISM, expect a lot of emails from her. And by that, she means she is going to really treat your work well with lots of attention. And she's hoping that writers will be able to trust her with the edits. So this is definitely a very hands-on editor and someone who really engages with poetry with the poetry community who wants to create connections with other writers stick together as she says with other writers and it was really a pleasure to get to know more about her and i hope you hope you enjoyed it the lit mag love podcast is co-presented by room magazine canada's oldest feminist literary journal and by we write we light online courses and more to help you polish and publish your writing 
and sound editing for this episode and the last couple episodes has been done by Micah Lemiski. She is the marvelous and hilarious host of Fainting Couch Feminists, another podcast from Rue Magazine, so definitely check that one out. And you can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter or Instagram at litmaglove. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.